We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 10 today. Isaiah chapter 10. And so if you'll find that place, if you'll find verse 20, and I'll be there in just a moment so we can read together. I know we have some people who are visiting with us today because we had a family dedication a moment ago and just others are visiting and we want to welcome you and let you know a bit about what we're doing. You've already been with us and you've heard us sing and read the Bible and you just heard us pray. Right now we're going to do what we call preach. And I know I'm standing here preaching, but we see this as a congregational experience together because we're all in God's Word, we're all reading, and we're thinking together, and we're praying, and we're asking for God to speak to us. We find ourselves at Grace Community Church in the book of Isaiah. It's a long prophetic book of the Old Testament, and it has some portions in it that seem to be everybody's favorite. And I think when the people tell me, I'm glad you're preaching through Isaiah because it's my favorite book, I say, you're probably referring to about three or four verses. <laughs> the rest of Isaiah is challenging. And we find ourselves in it right now by the leadership of God, the guidance of the Lord we believe in this whole book, reading these challenging passages. And they are unfolding to us great themes. That's what we're seeing. Great themes that are truth. It's a way of seeing the whole world and all of eternity through the eyes of a prophet named Isaiah who was inspired by God to give us God's very words. Some of it is difficult to understand. I know. I'm called to preach it, but it's truth, and we're in it, and we're glad. So I kind of started preaching there for a minute, but I, I was just going to say to those of you who are visiting, that's what we're doing here at Grace in Isaiah. Now, the portion of Isaiah that we are going to read today needs a bit of setup, okay? It needs, we need to put it in context so we're going to understand it. We can't just jump right in and figure out where we are. The portion that we're going to read is Isaiah 10, verses 20 through 27, but that's in a larger section that starts back in chapter 9 and verse 8 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 10, and it concerns this, God's judgment. There are two judgments here. There's a judgment on God's people Israel that's a judgment of discipline. Then we're going to read and see and talk about a judgment on a nation called Assyria that God actually used as his tool to judge his people Israel. But before we get out of this, we're going to move to the theme of the remnant of God, the people that God will keep in faithfulness to himself. And God will keep working with this people even after his judgment. So the portion we're going to read, Isaiah 10, 20 and following, explains the judgment and the remnant themes in, in, that are in this poetic form all around it. It all goes together. I still think it needs a little bit more set up before we read. Thank you for giving me a little longer introduction today. Uh, you need to remember what's happening. On the national scene, the nation of Israel that is, God's people have sinned against him. Now, this nation, Israel, these are the descendants of Abraham, and they go by various names. The house of Jacob, Ephraim, 
Samaria, that refers to the capital city of the northern half in Israel. Judah, that's the capital city in the southern half, Jerusalem. All of these are used together to refer to God's people. And they've sinned against the Lord. And the sin has been going on for generations. They're in such spiritual decline that the Lord has to discipline them. And he does so by using the nations around them. It doesn't seem fair. Other prophets called out to God and say, how could you do this? But he does. For his own purposes and his own wisdom, he disciplines his people, Israel, by using the nations around them. And he does it in stages, and he does it over a longer period of time. He's going to bring them under siege. He's going to conquer them. Some of them are going to be taken captive in what's called the Great Exile. And when his discipline is complete, he will use another nation to bring the remnant back to Jerusalem. Now, at this point in the book of Isaiah, where we are reading today, the internationals, that's the national, that's what's happening with God's people. The international scene belongs to a nation called Assyria. They're strong, they're ruthless, and they're going to conquer the northern part of God's people known as Israel. And they're going to get all the way up to the edge of the border or edge of the the capital city of Judah called Jerusalem, the southern part, and the Lord is going to stop them. Now, that's not the end of the history. It'll continue on, and we'll see it when we go through Isaiah. But that's where we are today. That's what is happening. So as we read Isaiah 10, 20 through 27, you'll understand the context. And the whole point is that God is working to bring his people back to absolute trust in him. Stand with me in honor of God's word. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed at their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
maybe the most important thing that we need to understand about the Bible is that it is showing us who God is. Yes, the Bible is history, but it's His story, God's. Yes, the Bible is full of doctrine and theology, and it is the doctrine of God primarily that we read in the Bible. Yes, the Bible shows us how we're supposed to live, but how we're supposed to live in relation to God. And because we fail to do so, the Bible tells us what God did to save us, which shows us what God is like. Every passage, every event, every person in the Bible teaches us something, gives some contribution to our understanding of God. In fact, years ago, I started reading the biographical material of the Bible differently. I used to read it as, oh, that's an interesting person. How can I be like that person? Or, oh, that's not a good person. How can I not be like that person? And then I realized that the point was not to try to be or not to be like someone. The point is, what is God saying about himself through those people? The Bible is about God. The ways of God in the Bible tell us who God is and what he is like. The ways, in other words, the way he acts. Now, there's a mistake that we often make when we read about the ways of God how and why and the way God does things with people. A mistake we often make when reading the Bible is that we think that his way of doing something with the people in the Bible and in the events in the Bible will be the way he's going to do it for us in our day, in our lives, in our situations. So we try to figure out how the events of our lives are going to play out We try to figure out what we should do exactly in every situation based on what somebody in the Bible did or how it played out for somebody else in the Bible. That's not how the Bible works. Sure, there are many similarities between our situation and the way things turn out in our lives and those within the Bible, but there are also many differences. The ways of God in the situations and the circumstances of the Bible don't tell us with certainty how our lives are going to work out. What they tell us is who God is in the midst of our circumstances and our situations. And what's the purpose of this? Why is God interested in telling us who he is and what he is like? You see, we want him to tell us the way things are going to work out so that we can have a good life. I get it. But why instead does God reveal who he is and what he is like? He does so because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know Him. The circumstances and the situations of life are not going to last long. They feel like they are. 
They feel like they're forever, but they're not. Sixty years can go by quickly. I chose 60 for a reason. And then 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 if the Lord allows. Quickly. The reason the Lord shows us Himself is because our lives and our circumstances are fleeting. He wants us to know Him. And He wants us to trust Him. And He wants us to love Him and obey Him. And as he said of the remnant, to lean on him. And you say that sounds selfish. To which we would say, not at all. Because God knows that God is God. And when we know him, we have everything. We have life itself. God said of his people, In Isaiah chapter 1, the first set of problems that God laid out in the first chapter of Isaiah about his people included this. My people don't know me. They don't know me. I want my people to know me. And so he raised up a prophet. To show us in these ways that can be challenging to understand who he is. What does that have to do with the passage we're in today? Everything. Because Isaiah, really the whole book, but we're taking chapter 9, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 10, tells us about the ways of God. And in doing so, it tells us who God is, what he's like. So we'll take this in three parts. The first one in chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse 4. It's all about the ways of God to discipline his people. And in that, he's called the Holy One. So what we see about God in the discipline of his people is that God is holy. Second part we'll look at is in chapter 10, verse 5 through verse 19. The way of God there is to judge Assyria, the very nation that he raised up to discipline his people Israel. And what we see there is that God is sovereign. He is over, rules over, even the nation that he raises up to discipline his people. And the third thing we'll see in the passage that we read is the way of God, the ways of God in keeping a remnant a portion of his people who will be kept faithful. And that shows us that God is gracious. So as the history unfolds, we see that God is holy, sovereign, and gracious in a person. And you know where I'm going with this because Isaiah keeps taking us to the Messiah. God is holy and sovereign and gracious And all of this is most evident to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only hope for unholy sinners to stand, to walk with, to know and love and enjoy, to enjoy God who is holy. Jesus did what he did, die on the cross, because God is sovereign over the evil acts of men who put him there. 
Jesus is the lavished grace of God who rallies a remnant, a people, kept in faith by His grace. It all points back to Jesus. So we begin with a phrase that Isaiah uses in chapter 40. From this text, we will behold our God. First, God is holy. Chapter 9, verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4, God speaks of His discipline of His people. He, we use the word judgment, and it's an appropriate word if we understand it to mean a disciplining judgment, a purging kind of judgment that's meant to purify a people. And in this long passage from 9.8 on through 10.4, God judges His people for four things. The first one, chapter 9, verse 8, He starts by saying, the word of the Lord comes against Jacob. There's one of those names again that's used for Israel. Jacob, why Jacob and Israel? Well, Jacob was a man. He was the grandson of Abraham. And in Genesis 32, he's actually called Israel. The names are used interchangeably. And it says, the word of God came against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. Picture that. The word falls. We usually don't think that words have weight. Rocks have weight. Words hang in the air. Not God's. His word is powerful. His word accomplishes. It will fall on Israel. So people will know this is a word from God. And what is he doing? He is disciplining them, verse 9, for their pride. Pride is another one of those themes that runs throughout Isaiah. We think we can get away with it. We think we can hide it. We can't. God sees everything and he sees their pride in verse 9. And listen to their pride in verse 10. God has disciplined them, and there'll be judgment upon them, and it will result in destruction of their cities, and their buildings will fall. Their buildings will fall. The bricks will fall one after another, and they will simply say, that's okay. We'll just rebuild with better stones. Pride. When the house comes down because of pride, we should humble ourselves and repent, not say we'll rebuild it. God says, verse 10, He's going to clear away their sycamore trees. When you see the clearing of, the, of your life because of your pride, you repent. What do they say? That's okay. We'll just plant cedars, bigger trees. Verse 11, the Lord is going to raise up the adversary of reason. That's the Syrian king. Well, who's the adversary of reason? The Assyrian king. And the Lord will use this nation as a tool for his discipline. And then look at the last line of verse 12 of chapter 9. He says, for all this, his anger has not turned away, not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. What that means is, is that their pride continued and so the Lord will continue with his discipline. The call is to humble ourselves. And if even now or somehow this week or whenever it is in the quiet of your own heart and mind and you see that little flash of pride start to come up in your mind and your heart, repent. Repent. And humble yourself before the Lord. 
The second reason for his discipline and his judgment is in chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. It's because of their persistence and the pervasiveness of their sin. Verse 13, they did not repent. They would not turn back to the Lord. So in verses 14 through 16, the, re, the recurring theme, again, we saw it in chapter 3. The Lord says, your leadership is going to be taken away. Your good leadership, he mentions the elders and the honored men, but also the bad leadership, the prophets who teach lies. They're going to be taken away. The sin is so persistent and so pervasive, he says in verse 17, that even the young people, even the orphans, the fatherless, even the widows, the ones that God is usually, and he will in a moment, rebuking the people for not protecting, he says now even these have participated in the sin and the evil and the disgraceful talk. And then the last part of verse 17, we hear it again. It's the second time he repeats the refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. They won't repent. And so his discipline remains. If you find in your heart persistent sin, repent. And if you need help, get it. Go flee to the Lord and to someone and say, help me. God, help me. The third reason that he's going to discipline them, found in chapter 9, verses 18 through 21, because they are devouring one another, which means they have turned on one another, not, not to one another. Listen, we're to turn to each other. We're to turn to each other to help, to pray, to encourage, to correct if need be. But they're turning on each other to devour. Interestingly, verses 18 and 19, the wrath of the Lord is being experienced in this way. Their own wickedness is left unchecked so that it consumes them. We say, oh, God disciplined them by raising up a nation to come from the outside and to put them down. Yes, but the wrath and the discipline of the Lord is also seen because he let them go their own way to such an extent that their own wickedness became a fire to consume them. In verses 20 through 21, he's, he's going to get very specific about this devouring of one another. The tribes of Israel were all of Israel. Jacob and Abraham, they were one people. They were supposed to be one people. But he says they've turned on each other. They're neglecting one another because some eat while others remain hungry. And when they war against each other, it's like they're devouring their own limbs. It's graphic language that he uses for the devouring of God's people toward one another. It's like they're chewing off their arm. Ephraim and Manasseh, Turn on each other. These are tribes of God's people. And together they turn against Judah. Hostility toward one another. Doesn't Paul warn, don't devour one another in the church. But look what happens. The end of verse 21, the refrain, the third time again. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. They would not repent. Brothers and sisters, if we're not loving each other, 
if we're not caring for each other, if we're turning on each other like the tribes, if we're devouring each other, let's repent. The Lord will restore us. Let's love. And then the fourth judgment is found in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And here they neglect the needy and they prey upon the misfortune of the vulnerable, the poor, the widows, and the orphans. And it is sin. He says in verse 1, he speaks of them as the writers who keep writing oppression. Now, most Bible scholars see there a reference to, it's a, a legal reference to writing laws. They keep passing, writing and passing laws that are aimed at making it legal to take away the rights of those who don't have a defense. And verse 3, since wealth is involved, it seems that these unjust laws allow for possessions and lands to be taken away from people who don't have protection. And he says in verse 3 that a day of punishment and ruin is going to come so that those who are doing this will have nowhere to turn for help. And they'll have no place to stash the wealth that they gained off the backs of other people. And then what does he say? The end of verse 4. For the fourth time, the same refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. They will not repent. And so his discipline will continue. He's calling his people to do justice. Now these judgments, these disciplines, what do they reveal about God? Well, it sounds like they reveal that God is mean. No. They reveal that God is holy. He's called in the portion that we read, chapter 10 and verse 20, he's called the Holy One of Israel. And we are supposed to be leaning on the Holy One of Israel. He's holy. If you go back to the books of the law, the first books of the Old Testament, where God gave commands to his people about how they were supposed to worship him. That's what the commands were about. And then also how they were supposed to treat one another. And then how they were supposed to be a distinct people, a people who lived differently from the nations around them so that they could give a testimony to God. Now, what does God say in the law that his primary reason for giving these laws was. What did he say? He said, it's because I am holy. He kept repeating that refrain. You shall worship me this way because I am holy. You shall treat one another this way because I am holy. You should be different from the other nations because I am holy. God's ways for himself and for his people. God's ways here in Isaiah show his moral perfections. They show his pure character. And so he disciplines. He disciplines those things and those people who are his who violate his holiness. And there's a bit of a riddle here, as one pastor I know calls it. There's a bit of, bit of a riddle here. How is it that consistently unholy people 
How is it that a consistently unholy person could ever stand with a God who is holy? How can his anger, when? Four times he says, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still outstretched. How, when will his anger ever be turned away? When will his hand ever be stayed? How, how can we ever lean on the Lord who's called the Holy One of Israel? It's a necessary question. It's not a popular question. It's strange to our ears. Strange to our ears when the only attribute of God that we have time for and tolerance for is that God is love. And yes, he's love, but his love is holy. The question needs to be asked. How is it that unholy people, an unholy person, has any hope before a holy God? And the reason the question has to be asked and answered is because it's the, it's the question that gets us to the good news. We say, I've been saved. Saved from what? <laughs> a lot more than boredom. And the unfolding of the word gives light. And Isaiah unfolds. If he comes back before next Sunday, read Isaiah 53 this week. It unfolds and it gets us to the light where we see that there's one who took our unholiness upon himself. One who took the very wrath of God upon himself. The wrath of God that was due our sin upon himself. We sang about it a moment ago. We sing about it every week and every time we do. We think, we think of the cross of Jesus Christ because there Jesus Christ turned away the wrath of God because he absorbed it, turned it away from us. There he, the hand of God has stayed because it was, it was against his own son on the cross. Again, you say, how mean until we understand that Jesus Christ himself is called in Isaiah chapter nine, mighty God. Jesus is God. Choosing himself God choosing himself to take on our sin against God. This is the gospel. And he's the way. The riddle is solved. He is the way that a holy God makes unholy people able to come to know him and to enjoy him forever. Second thing we see is that God is sovereign. This is seen in his judgment over Assyria. Beginning in chapter 10 and verse 5 on through verse 19, it begins with woe. That's a word of judgment. A woe is pronounced on Assyria. Let me give you a few quick points about Assyria. First of all, God really did use a nation ruthless and evil and sinful like Assyria. He really did use this nation as his rod and his staff of discipline against his people, verses 5 and 6. But that was not Assyria's intention. Assyria was not in league with God. Assyria did not say, we really hate to come and do this to you, but you know, we love God. And so we're going to be the hand of discipline for the Lord. No. Verse 7, he tells us, the whole intention of Assyria was to cut off, destroy, and plunder Israel. Assyria was evil. 
And then verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11, on verses 13 and 14 of chapter 10, Assyria boasts. Assyria says, if I can take one, a list of cities are named, listed there, Kalno and Carchemish and Hamath and Arpad and, and, and Syria and Damascus on to Jerusalem, a list of cities there as if Assyria is saying, if I can take one city, if we can take one city, we can take them all. And then the arrogance of this, my strength, my wisdom, my hand has conquered, I've plundered, I've brought down, and I have become wealthy. Assyria is, humanly speaking, the superpower of the day. But, in reality, Assyria is a mere tool in the hand of God and doesn't even know it. But Assyria's ignorance of the Lord and of His ways is no excuse for her pride and her ruthlessness. Neither is Assyria's strength the determinant of anything, much less Israel's future. No, God is sovereign over Assyria too, and God is, a so is sovereign over every nation on the face of the earth in all time and all place. And I remember that when I read about what's happening in this world, and I say, how long, O Lord? And then we remember, in that day, it's a great phrase, in that day, in a day, and let's be careful, because it's not our triumph, it's God's. And so what does he say to Assyria? Verse 12 of chapter 10, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. That means when the Lord has disciplined his people, then what will the Lord do? He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his, in his eyes. Verses 15 through 19, God himself, the light of Israel, the Holy One, will become a fire and a flame, and he will judge Assyria. All the way to the, almost the end of chapter 10, verse 32, the Lord himself is so sovereign over Assyria that he lets them get all the way up just to the edge, but not into Jerusalem when he says, stop right there. The sovereignty of God is over all the nations and all people. His sovereignty is seen in the fact that he's using even an evil nation with evil intentions to do evil things. He does it for his purposes. And again, what does that remind us of? We're not Judas and the religious leaders and Pilate all of evil intent when they crucified the Lord. Were not the actions of everyone involved evil when they nailed him to the cross? But did not God, Acts tells us, in his predetermined plan, use them as tools? For his redemptive purpose, sending his own son, his own son willingly going to bear the wrath of God against the very people who put him there. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything and everyone. The sovereignty of God does not mean that evil won't be judged. It will be judged. It's a mystery to us. 
The sovereignty of God does not remove the evil intentions and actions of people in this world. It simply turns it for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8. And here is another mystery of mysteries we may not see. We may not see it. Oh, I wish you could see it. I wish I could see it. I wish we could always see it. I wish there was some guarantee we could say, oh, just another month and you'll see it. But the truth is we may not ever see in this life how God in his sovereignty turns the evil into good. But we have seen enough because we've seen it in his son Jesus. You say, how do I know God is sovereign over the circumstances of my life and that somehow he'll turn it for good if I don't see it in this life? Look at the cross and you'll see it. Trust his sovereignty. It leads us to the third point. God is gracious. That's the portion we read today. It told us that God will keep a remnant. Verse 20, it starts, chapter 10, verse 20, in that day. It's a term that always speaks of the future. Isaiah is always looking ahead. He's looking beyond his day. We're going to get to chapter 11 next week, Lord willing. It's a good one. Read ahead. But he talks about the Messiah and the kingdom to come. It's a day when a remnant will trust in the Lord. The remnant, God's people, won't lean on anybody else, won't lean on anything else. Only lean on the Lord. Today, let's lean only on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, lean only on the Lord. He tells them in verse 24, don't fear the Assyrians. The Lord's going to judge the Assyrians. Don't worry about trying to match up the Assyrians with anybody today. That's not, I told you earlier, that's not the way the Bible works. Just know that God is judge and God knows what he's doing and he's sovereign and he's going to work. He's going to deliver them from the Assyrians just as he did when he delivered them from Egypt, just as he did when he was with Gideon and delivered them from the Midianites, which two references to the fact that, humanly speaking, God's people should have been crushed in both of those situations because they were so weak and so small. But God did the delivering by his own power. and He's going to break the yoke of slavery because their necks, he calls it, the last word I read was fat. I was wondering if you guys were even thinking, what does that mean? I hope you did. It, it means they were so, God's going to make them strong enough to break the yoke. It's the blessing of who? The remnant. The people, verse 22. The descendants of Abraham, Israel, are as numerous as the sand of the sea. You remember that from Genesis 22. That was the promise God gave to Abraham. But he said, only a remnant is going to remain. Only a remnant is going to return. What is he talking about remnant? He means this. Believers. Believers. Those who are in faith. The children of Abraham, he said, are going to be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. But a remnant is going to believe. Romans 4 Romans 10, a remnant is going to believe. Faith in Christ is what makes a remnant a remnant. Jew and Gentile alike must trust Christ to be saved from the wrath of God 
and must trust Christ to be kept for all of eternity. God graciously saves through faith in Christ. So, who is God? What is he like? Well, he's not like anybody we would create ourselves. He is who he is. In fact, that's his name. I am who I am. We use that phrase. It is what it is. Nope, nothing is what it is. Except God. He is what he is. What is he? Who is he? What is he like? The things we've seen today from Isaiah tell us that he's holy. This is why his judgments are always just. We're unholy. This is why we must turn to Christ who died for our sins that he might reconcile us to God, forgive us of our sins, reconcile us to God, make us new that we might be made like him holy. He is sovereign. That's how he works for good in this life where there's a lot of evil and a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow. He's sovereign. That's why we turn to Christ in all things. We just keep following a lamb with scars because he shows us that God redeems. He redeems. He turns for good what others mean for evil. As we think and we pray about the evils of this world, don't fear. Pray. Pray. Remember God is sovereign. Let your heart be full of faith and hope. And God is gracious. He'll keep you. He'll keep you to the end. His promises are for the remnant. Who are they? The people who believe. The people of faith. Keep turning. See, I've turned to Christ. Well, turn again. What about tomorrow? Again. Next day, again. Turn, turn. Keep turning to Christ. He keeps. He keeps his people. Holiness and sovereignty and grace they go together. This is God. It's not hard to see what we would think if we had one without the others. If we had a holy God who wasn't sovereign and wasn't gracious. If we had a sovereign, powerful God who wasn't holy, <laughs> pure and righteous and right and good, as well as gracious. If we had a gracious God that was not holy or sovereign, what would that do? But all together, God, behold your God. He's pure and perfect and good and beautiful. And he's powerful. He's able. He's over. He's never out of control. And he's personal. He's personal. He loves you. He's gracious to you as a person. He made a way for you to come to him through Christ. He, through Christ, reconciled you. You can stand with God and know his love and know him and trust him regardless of what happens in this life. You can know God 
And you can enjoy God. And your heart can be full of the joy of the Lord because he's gracious. Trust him. May the Lord shape us according to his word and turn us to himself as we see him. Father, thank you for your word. 